Friends, <clears throat> my name is Bert DeYoung, and um, I'm one of the retired pastors who continues to call this place home, and a fine home it is. And it's good to be with you this morning and have the opportunity to open the Word of God with you again. Uh, when you're looking at the cover of the worship folder, you can see there's a gauge on that cover. It's toward the empty side. Maybe that's where you are this morning. And our hope and our prayer is that before you leave in the next moments, maybe it's already happened through one of the songs, through the prayer, that that needle has been bumped a bit toward the right from empty to full. And um, part of what we're about in Lent is taking a look at the emptiness that is very much a part of everyone's life, including our own, and all the empty moments that can be part of our life, and asking that God would fill us and fill us again. I'm keenly aware of the fact that at my age, which is 73, uh, moving that needle from left to right is more difficult than it used to be. It doesn't move as fast. I don't move as fast. It doesn't move as often. I don't move as often. But it still is my desire that it would be moving in that direction, and I'm remembering times when I was a lot younger that that needle would bounce a whole lot more quickly than it does now. Um, I do have a faint recollection of those, like those of you who are about 12 years old or so, right around there, you know, middle school, of um, wondering, so what's my place in this world? What am I all about? What am I here for? What's my life going to be like? How is it all going to turn out? And what can I do that will make a difference? And how can I feel good about myself? And how can I have a good time with the people around me? All those things that kind of swirl in your life when you're at that age. And um, I have to tell you that I don't think about those things much anymore. I have a different set of questions and a different set of concerns. There was an article that was published in our denominational, the Christian Reformed Church's monthly magazine called The Banner. Maybe you recognize the cover. Uh, some of you get that in your home, right? It said, Pew or Canoe, the Unexpected Black Hole. I thought it was very insightful. It was written by somebody who's about a little bit younger than me, maybe in their 50s or 60s. And um, he said that at times he's not sure whether it's better to be out fishing or to be in church. Well, well. When I retired, Dave Armstrong gave me a T-shirt that said, I would rather be fishing thinking about God in church than being in church thinking about fishing. Yeah, yeah, huh? That's the way it is. So. Well, here we are in church, so uh, let's think about not fishing, but church. But I, I, I get what that's about now more than others. The, the author of that article um, just is very honest and I think insightful when he says that at times, take a look at his words. He says he comes to church with a hunger and thirst for complexity, for a satisfying theological Diet that targets some of our own life issues. We've had enough exhortations about quiet times, enough stories about witnessing on airplanes. I always love those stories. Most 50-somethings want to explore life's meaning, service, suffering, loss, wealth, and hope without the usual cliches. Can I assume that all of us, whether you're 7 or 70 this morning, can I assume that all of us really do want a full spiritual life? I mean, if, we're, if we don't want that, why are we here? 
that we really, in, in the deepest part of us, are longing for something more than that which already we have. Even if we're feeling like the needle is way toward full, do we not believe and do we not hope and do we not want that there should be more for us? Could we all agree that moving the needle is going to be different for young folks than it is for old folks? But if we all begin where the word of God begins, like in Psalm 63, isn't there hope that we could all get there together regardless of age or even spiritual maturity? Psalm 63 that says, God, you're my God. Listen, young people, you can say this. And older folks, you can say this. God, you're my God. I really seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry, weary land where there's no water. It's like a kid who's run a marathon. It's like a kid who's run a 10K who hasn't stopped for any kind of liquid refreshment or supplement along the way, and he gets to the finish line. He's just dry as a stick and needs some Gatorade, needs some fluid, needs something pumped into him to get him going again. That's Psalm 63. And all of us, or many of us at least, have found ourselves in that Psalm 63 place where we are longing for more of what we already have just a bit of. So whether we come to the scriptures this morning, young or old or somewhere in between, if we are all agreed that there is more that we want, and if we all believe that God honors the prayers, the requests, the hearts of those who really seek him, then this morning, somewhere, somehow, I believe God is going to move us in that direction. So we're coming to Luke chapter 13 with this longing to be filled. In Luke 13, Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. And this is Jesus at his fiery, direct best. People my age like certain songs that go like this. I come to the garden alone. You know the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and... He talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. Luke 13 is Jesus and me walking in the garden, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me, repent or perish. (laughs) It's not really what you expect, but it may be exactly what you need. So that's Jesus talking this morning in an unexpected, direct, fiery way. Scott Jose says that this is Jesus with sharp edges. And if you like the soft, warm Jesus, you just want to get your arms around and give him a big squeeze. This is Jesus who hurts just a little bit because he brings you to places in yourself you don't ordinarily want to go and helps you see things in yourself you may not ordinarily want to see. This is Jesus confronting his followers with a bold call to repentance. And out of each flows a common theme. Repent or you too will perish. So, he's preparing his believers, his followers, for the time when he will not be with them. The end of his earthly ministry is nearing. And he's going to point out some things they need to know and be aware of before he leaves them. And we come to Luke chapter 13, and here's a conversation with them. And you can read the words in yellow if you would. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate, same Pilate who is so prominent later in the story of Jesus, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, 
Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. People from the north of Israel, Galileans from Jesus' hometown, the place he knew best, the place that is still, I think, the most beautiful place in all Israel, had come to the temple to do what they were supposed to do. They were there to bring bring sacrifice. And as they shed the blood of these animals, somehow it expiated, took away, paid for their own sins, and God was satisfied with them. So they've come to the temple to make an animal sacrifice. And while in the temple, in a story we know nothing else about other than what Luke tells us, while in the temple, Pilate has his troops murder them. Can you imagine that? It's like you come to a house that we know far too much about this in our day. You come to a place like this to worship God and suddenly human blood is shed. Jesus brings them all to that terrible moment when they're thinking about human blood in the temple. It's a terrible story. More than terrible for them, it was blasphemy. Jewish people should not have been in the, should have been in the temple, but Gentile people, never in the temple, never troops in the temple. It shouldn't happen that way. And beyond that, the blood shed in sacrifice was never human blood. It was animal sacrifice. So in this blasphemous act, the people are thinking about the terrible moment when the blood of Galileans is flowing on the temple floor. And Jesus said, do you think it was because they were worse than you are? You would have expected that Jesus might have taken a pastoral role at that point. And you say to the people, you know, remember that time every, those people got slaughtered in the temple? Isn't that a horrible thing? Isn't it an awful thing that people would have to pay that way? Doesn't your heart go out to those poor people, to their families, to the wives, the husbands, the kids, everyone left behind? Don't you just break for those people? And that's an appropriate response. Of course we would. Or, or maybe you would think that he, he would have a political response. Isn't it terrible that Roman troops are desecrating the very temple of God? We've got to do something about the situation in our day and shake ourselves free from this Roman rule. And of course, that's an appropriate response. Who would want to live under that kind of political circumstance? Or, or at least he could have offered a theological response, right? Maybe there's something bigger going on here, people, that we don't know about that has to do with these Galileans. And maybe God is going to work something out of this whole thing that will be good for the Galileans, that will be good for his people, or that will see to it that those who perpetrated this horrible crime will pay for it, because that's the way God works. But Jesus doesn't take a pastoral, and he doesn't take a prophetic, and he doesn't take a political response. Jesus simply says, do you think it's because they're worse than you? No. You repent. You repent, or you too will perish. That is not what I'd expect. I don't think that's what I'd preach. That's what's here. He brings them to another moment, another story they knew about. It's another tragedy. This time, a tower in the pool of Siloam, the ruins of the pool are still there in Jerusalem. Quite remarkable, actually, to this day. Look at this uh, little story. Or the 18, Jesus says, or the 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. 
Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. A tower collapses. Eighteen innocent people die. What do you have to say about that? I know what I'd say. I'd say, who built that thing? What, what were they thinking? Was it shoddy construction? Who's the architect? Who's responsible for the design? Why is it that something you put in a public place like that for public use would collapse and innocent people pay for it? Somebody ought to pay for this. Who did this? Or you might say, it's terrible, you know. You come to a place of Siloam, a place for healing and refreshment, and the tower collapses. Think about those poor people crushed to death and all of the loved ones they've left behind. And again, I'm waiting for a response from Jesus. He says, do you think it's because they were worse than everybody else in Jerusalem? No, no. Repent, or you too will perish. Bad things happen in Jesus' world. Bad things happen in our world. A Boeing 737, Super 8 Max, falls from the sky in Indonesia. And what, 197 people die? 189 people? Months later, another Boeing plane falls uncontrollably from the sky. 157 people die. What do we have to say about that? We say, what is going on? Who is responsible for that? Is it a design flaw? Is it a software flaw? What is it? Is it, is it because these people were just a plain load of sinners so bad that God decided to take them all from the face of the earth? A cyclone has swept through the south of Africa. And as we're speaking, they're trying to bring food to people who are dying because they haven't had food. And they're concerned about a cholera outbreak. And they're still looking for more than a 1,000 bodies that would be buried somewhere under the mud and the rubble of the cyclone. And we look at that and we say, isn't there something they can do so that when those things happen, we don't have that kind of tragedy? Can't they build a better house? Isn't there a warning system? Can't we do something about that so that those things don't happen? All of that's appropriate. All of that's right. But then... I'm reading Jesus. He just says, you think it's because the people in South Africa are worse than the people in South Elmhurst? No. You repent. Or you too will perish. Record water levels. I mean, drive three, four hours west of here, right? Go to Missouri, go to Iowa, go to Nebraska, and we're reading that there are record Levels of flood water that are washing away the hopes and dreams of generations of people who have occupied the same farmland. And you look at them and you think, well, they shouldn't build there. I mean, you know, it rains, it's going to flood, you're going to have that happen. Or isn't there something we can do to control the rivers and the waters? And there's something about global warming we can do so that these things don't happen again? It's all appropriate questions, and we need to ask those questions. But if Jesus were here, he'd say, do you think it's because those people who got more rain than we did and whose livelihood is being washed away are worse than we are, you are? No. You repent or you will perish. 
churches within 20 miles of this building, 20, 25 miles of this building, you know Willow Creek Harvest. There are congregations that have taken body blows because of leadership failure. And I hear about those stories that it just sends a, a shiver of fear through my heart. And you say, well, they should have the right controls in place and they should have taken these steps and that should have been done and he, she, or they should have and all of that. It's all true and we need to learn from it and all that. But I think there's a moment at which Jesus would say, do you think it's because you're a better church than they are? No. You repent or you too will perish. I mean, that's what it says, isn't it? Isn't that what's happening in these passages? This is, isn't this Jesus with his sharp edges talking to those of us who rightly lament loss and waste and who want to take appropriate steps to see to it that these things never happen in our life? Isn't it Jesus who comes to us at these moments when we have no control of them and when we want to assume that maybe those bad things are happening because those are bad people? Jesus is saying, no, you repent or you perish because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God because there's none righteous, no, not one, because we are all on board the same sin-soaked, sinking ship and there's only one way out and his name is Jesus wow okay so he follows that up with this story right a parable take a look at the parable then he told this parable a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but he didn't find any so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Yeah. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Well, here's an interesting turn. After the Galileans in the tower, where you'd expect some pastoral response that says, no, repent or you too will perish, you see the fig tree that is perishing, and in fact is dead, should be producing fruit, and it's not. You'd guess the farmer would look at that thing and say, that's it with you, boom, bring out the axe, it's done, gone. It didn't repent, didn't produce, it's going to perish. That's not what happens. I would have expected it to happen that way. Well, what is it about the fig tree? I mean, what is it about that that would have made it so important to a farmer and so important in this story? Well, if you go back through the scriptures in just a few places, you, you might remember some of the things that Jesus' original hearers would have been very familiar with. They, for example, when he starts talking about the fig tree, would have thought, well, well, the fig trees are really important in our world. I mean, they've been important since the beginning of time. When Adam and Eve looked at each other and thought, whoa, we're naked, what is it that they did? They made clothes out of fig leaves. So the leaves of this tree were for the covering of that which shames the human community. Pretty important for them. They would have known, for example, that in the days of the kings, a picture of prosperity 
was a picture that described as every man sitting under his own fig tree. That's kind of nice. They would have known that a fig tree for the children of Israel was a place that gave shade. It didn't only give fruit. It was this 20-foot tall tree with three-inch leaves that when it's in full leaf is a delightful, wonderful tree to sort of lay under. You can string your hammock underneath it. Let the cool Mediterranean breezes blow over you as you avoid the hot sun. Just lay back and enjoy the good things of life. Kind of nice picture on a day like today in the state of Illinois, right? Who wouldn't want to be laying under a fig tree, getting a, just a few minutes of laid back, enjoy the sunshine and the cool breezes? It was a picture of prosperity, life at ease. They would have known that a fig tree since the day of Moses was one of those fruits that God promised them in the promised land. God said, when you cross over the river, Moses, and take this land, you will find a land of milk and honey and then eight other fruits, one of which is a fig tree. So when they ate a fig, they would be thinking, God, you keep your promises. I like this fruit. I like your promises. And when you promise me, just like you said, I'll eat figs. I'm eating figs. You keep your promises. They would have known that in the book of the Song of Solomon, you know that beautiful love poetry that young people in love ought to know very well because it's a picture of God's love for his people. They would have known that there's a verse there that describes the coming of spring as the budding of the fig tree. And when the fig tree blossoms, it's the sign of spring. Oh, God, bring us fig tree blossoms in Illinois. And they would have known that not only do fig trees blossom in in a time of spring, but there is something in the human heart that warms and grows and loves and deepens. It's like, you know, the old saying, in spring a young man's fancy, right? All of those good thoughts that bubble up to the surface, all of those things come together when he's talking about a fig tree. And here's this tree that's produced, that's supposed to produce something so important to all of them that has this long history of being important, and that tree isn't doing anything. And the farmer says, Three years I've been here looking at this tree. Nothing is happening. We're going to cut it down. He says to the foreman on the job, cut it down. And the foreman says, well, why don't we give it one more year? Is it the passage of time that would make a difference? Is it simply, well, if we give this thing more time, it's going to produce something good? And isn't that what we're hoping for? Oh, God, give me more time. Give me more time. Give me more time. I will repent. I will turn. I will do better. I will be better. I will get closer to you. Give me time. That's not what Jesus said. He said, give it one more year. I will dig in the soil around it, and I will fertilize it. And then if it produces, fine. And if not, and we can cut it down. So the point Jesus is making is that when we might have expected get at that tree with an axe and take care of it because like the other things I just said, it didn't repent and it didn't turn, so we're going to cut it down. In this instance, there is a divine grace, an unexpected moment that comes in and it is God himself who says, you know what? I'm going to get my hands dirty in the soil around that life. 
and I'm going to pour into that all that it needs to be productive. And then after I have done that work in that life, then if it produces fruit, great. If not, then it can be cut down. It is a moment so unexpected. It's a moment so gracious. Almighty God on his knees digging into the dirt of human life so that trees like us can be productive. I want to say, God, get your hands dirty in my life. Dig down deep. Take care of what you need to take care of there. Uproot, unroot what is evil. Pour into me the sweetness of your Holy Spirit's presence. Fertilize me, nourish me, pour into me whatever it is I need so that I can be productive for you. That's what I want. I don't want to be cut down. I want to turn to you and ask, oh God, that you would in turn do your work in my life. Get your hands dirty in my life. I called a daughter-in-law yesterday, and I said to her, so how are you doing? She's Kalamazoo, and, um, Kalamazoo Michigan. And she said, I've had a great... She, she was smiling. Or, you know, the... Um, yeah, FaceTime. Right? She was smiling. And she said, I had a good day. And I said, well, what did you do? And she said, I was out working in the garden. I said, really? Yeah. She said, digging in the dirt. It's a great thing when it's springtime you can dig in the dirt. I mean, really it is. It's like... You want to get your hands in the soil and find that it's not uh, icy and cold and miserable, but to get your hand in that soil and begin to prepare things to grow and to spring up again. It's like we're in this moment of life saying to God, Oh God, get your hands in the soil of my life. If it is hard and crusty and unproductive, just cultivate me in every way you need to. And if there's something essential missing in me so that I'm not producing, just pour it into me so that I can produce what you want from me. So we come to these stories, you know, the the tragedies and the parable, and we come with our own gauge somewhere between empty and full, and we say, God, fill me. And if if you're a young person this morning, if you're 12 years old this morning, I want to talk to you for just a moment. One of the most honest, sermon evaluations I ever received I got about seven years ago from a 12-year-old in church. And after the service, she came up to me and she said, that wasn't very interesting. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't mind offending older folks, but when a 12-year-old, and she was right, it wasn't very interesting. I wasn't even that interesting. (laughs) Hey, listen, 12-year-olds, if you're somewhere in there. You ask God to dig around in your life. I mean, you know, really, you are a young plant. And I, we, everyone here wants to see you grow. And we want to see you productive in ways that those of us who are older plants aren't productive. And we want to see you explore life in a way that 
gives you a sense of purpose and meaning and fulfillment. And more than that says, I am here to do something for God and God is going to do something in me. And whatever it is he wants for me, that's what I want. I want to love Jesus more than anybody's ever loved Jesus. I want to live for Jesus more than anyone has ever lived for Jesus. I want to serve Jesus better than anyone has ever served Jesus. Those are the dreams of the young, the hopes of those who are planted in God's garden. And we are hoping and praying for you that God will work in the soil of your life, dig around inside of you, pour into you everything you need so that you can be everything that God the gardener wants you to be. We want that for you, amen? We want that for you. Nothing would make us happier than to see young, growing followers of Jesus and say, man, I wish I was like those kids. I wish I was like those kids. And now to those of us who are old and gnarled and some of the limbs are broken off and the leaves are pretty much gone. Psalm 92. <laughs> it's a great psalm for people my age. It says that even in old age you can be fresh and green and still bearing fruit. Thank God for that. There is a place in God's garden for old, big trees. How do they maintain productivity? What is it that people my age, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, what is it we're about in this world? How do we do that? We stand among other trees, and in part, we look at those who are younger, we admire them, and at times, we are able to pour into them that which God has poured into us over the years, so we need to get alongside some of these younger trees and not preach sermons at them. They get one of those every week from their pastor. Just be somebody who comes alongside them, watches them grow, gives them encouragement, gives them correction, gives them whatever it is that we're able to see honestly at that point that helps them become the people that we have ourselves wanted to be. And then we need to be standing in that garden along with the other old fig trees because one of the great truths of getting older in the faith is not that you're going to learn something new every day that you never knew before from the Word of God, but you are going to see in the lives of others like you things you have not seen in their life before or in your own. So it is in the common shared experiences of others like us that we draw strength and encouragement and hope and life and love. When we see God doing his work in others and share that with each other, we find that we ourselves are strengthened. The word of God comes down his church this morning and he says, folks, bad things happen in this world. They may not have happened to you, but it's not because you're better than the rest of the world. It's because only by God's grace he has spared you and from that comes a lesson. You repent or you too will perish. If you are running from God, run toward him. If you are running toward sin, run from it. Move in a direction that takes you deeper into the heart of God and farther from the life that can only destroy you. And then it says one more year. One more year of digging into your life, pouring his love and self 
into you, giving you all you need to grow and flourish. There is a place of security and provision, shade, nourishment that can be found here every Sunday, every day in the fellowship of all these people. It's not under a fig tree. It's in the name of Jesus, who is our hope, our strength, our provision, our life. Repent or you too will perish. One more year. Work in my life, God. Let's pray. These words of Jesus are disturbing, Father, and yet so very hopeful. I simply ask of you that you, in all of us, in every age, do your work so that we can be productive people, that we can see the needle of life moving from empty to full, and recognize that you're working us in your grace that allows it. In Jesus' name, amen.